Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Faith. I don't know if some of you have seen me up here singing before. Um, I've been blessed to be part of the Kettlebrook family since its creation, so it's been really awesome to see how God has been moving the entire time and has been changing my life through this community. Um, last week, we focused on the verses from Matthew 5, 17 to 26. And um, as I was sitting uh, in the service last week, I was really convicted by the verse, verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And I felt very convicted about a specific person that was actually sitting in the service that I was supposed to go seek their forgiveness um, for some hurt I had caused them in a, in a couple years ago. And it was really hard to, <laughs> frankly, swallow my pride and go do it. But um, something that really stuck out to me um, was how Ryan was saying it. It empowers us to be more like Christ, to reconcile to each other. And it shows how God is reconciling himself to us. And um, along with that song we just sang, um, The Grace of God, um, God has different um, purposes for his grace. I believe he has saving grace, which brings us into his kingdom, and he has sustaining grace, which helps us to become more like him, but also empowering grace, which help us, helps us to overcome our sin. And I felt his grace upon me, and I went and apologized to this person and asked for their forgiveness. And um, amazingly, they did forgive me. And that's all by the grace of God. So I just wanted to give the Lord glory for that today. Amen. Thanks for that, Faith. That was encouraging. And hopefully, what we hope to do during those Word at Work uh, sessions is encourage you that the Word of God is living and active and, uh, and has the power to transform lives even today. So, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. I want to welcome all of you who are here with us this morning, especially those of you who are new uh, and visiting with us. If you are visiting with us, uh, we have a message for you. A message is simply this, that our world is just inextricably broken. You may have noticed that. You may, if, you do, if you haven't, just watch the nightly news, okay? You may have noticed that in your own life. But the good news is this is that God is not content to leave the world in the state that it is in, in its state of brokenness, and that he has launched this kind of rescue mission, and eventually he is going to set the world to rights again. The world is going to be just the way that he wants it to be, and just the the way that we want it to be. And the fulcrum, the linchpin, the, the, the cornerstone of God's rescue mission is the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, into our world and his life and death and resurrection from the dead. And so that's what we do. We celebrate that moment. And so all of us who are here today, if you're looking around and you're new here, you look around, what you'll see is you'll see a room full of people who are students or followers, or the biblical word is disciples, of this man, Jesus Christ. We want to make his ways become our ways. We want his values and his attitudes to become our values and attitudes. We want his priorities and the things that are important to Jesus. We really, really want to be important to us as well. 
And so one of the things that we do here during these meetings together is we open up the scriptures, the word of God, and, and we look at them. Not so much like analyzing them under a microscope where we're dissecting them and taking them apart and stuff like that. But in essence, what we want to do is we want to put ourselves under the microscope and let the word of God look at us and dissect and analyze us and see where is it in our lives where our lives might not measure up to what the word of God says and what the standards of God is. But all of us here are on the Jesus mission. And we want to have the, we want to let the world, whether it's the world near to us, the world far from us, know about this incredible man, Jesus Christ, who proved that he always was who he said he was, the Son of God, by rising from the dead. Um, we do that near and far. Um, so we, we want the Word of God to, to influence us. So I want to invite you to uh, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter uh, 5. You'll find that on page 684. And, uh, and we are specifically studying this prolonged section of a teaching of Jesus, which is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing what does it look like for us who are his followers to be engaged and to, and to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are God's children and now we're citizens of his kingdom. What does it look like to live under the rule and reign of God and be in his kingdom? And what it looks like in the rule and reign of God, in the kingdom of God, is diametrically opposed to much of how our world works. And he says some things that are completely opposite and counterintuitive to the kind of prevailing th- thoughts uh, of the day. Okay, and so we've been, we've been looking at some of the things. And nowhere, nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount is that probably go- going to be evident than in the passage that, that we read today. Jesus is going to say some things today that will disturb us. Okay, I can guarantee you that. Jesus is probably going to say some things that are mildly counterintuitive to the way that the world looks at things. And I'll be honest with you, for some of us, these are going to be things that are hard to accept. But I want you to understand from the, from the very get-go, Jesus, in this passage, he is not being condemning. He is not being accusing. What he is doing is clearly and unmistakably holding up the standard which God has set and his good intentions for marriage and for his creation. And as his adopted children, we are to reflect the nature and the character of God, our Heavenly Father. Okay? We're, we're called to do that. So, God is a loving God, right? And so we're to be loving people. Alright? God is a forgiving God. Okay? And so we're called to be people who offer and extend forgiveness. God, in the Scriptures, n- numerous times, one of His outstanding qualities and character traits is that he is faithful. God is entirely faithful. And we see that all throughout the scriptures. You see that in Deuteronomy 7, 9. We'll put that up there. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. Deuteronomy 7 9. In Psalms, we see this. Psalm 33, 4. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. These are just, this is just a, a few of the verses. I could have picked any one of a number of verses that speak to God's faithfulness. So, if God in his nature and in his essence is faithful, then how do we, as his children, reflect that faithfulness to a watching world around us? How do we do that? How do we reflect the faithfulness of God? If we are members of his, uh, of his kingdom, if we are members of his, uh, of his family, how do we reflect that faithfulness? I would submit to you this morning that we reflect God's faithfulness in our own faithfulness and fidelity in our marriage vows, in our marriage covenants to one another, and in the words that we speak to one another. We reflect God's faithfulness. So I want to turn in your Bible to Matthew 5, and we're going to read 27 to 37. We're going to take this kind of one section at a time. God at his core is faithful, and we reflect his faithfulness in our own fidelity to our marriage vows, to our marriage covenant, and to the words that we say to one another. He says this. He says, you have heard that it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Now, again, going off the passage that we read last week, Jesus is more interested and, and more concerned not about outward conformity and lockstep conformity to a rule of law, but Jesus is actually concerned about what is going on in our hearts. So last week we talked about murder. And Jesus said, well, you all know that it's wrong to murder someone. But I tell you that if you are angry with someone and you wish they were dead, it is just as if you had done the deed yourself. It's just, just as bad. So Jesus is concerned about what is going on in our hearts. He wants to get at the core of our being. And remember, one of his big accusations against the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15 was he said, listen, he says, you guys honor me with your lips. He quotes Isaiah to them. He says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts, your hearts are far from me. And so Jesus wants our hearts, he's interested in that, and not just outward conformity to, uh, to the law. And so he makes this jarring statement here that just to look at a woman lustfully with lustful intent in your heart is the same as having sex with her or him, as the case may be. Jesus knows that the most important sex organ in our bodies is our brain and that all sexual sin initially has its origins in a person's imagination. And Jesus categorically says here that people of the kingdom have to have control of their body, not only of their bodies, but of their mind and will and imagination as well. 
One of the fruits of the Spirit, a fruit of the Spirit, that the Spirit brings forth in us as His followers, as, as, as He leads us, is self-control. The supernatural ability to restrain and restrict where our minds and our hearts go. Now, you may say, <laughs> you know, Jesus, this is a bit of an overreach. All right? Like, I'm a red-blooded male. You know, I mean, I'm allowed to do a little bit of window shopping. I understand. Just don't buy anything, right? Well, try telling that to the wife who has just discovered that her husband is viewing pornography. And you will understand the stinging truth of Jesus' words here. It's the same thing. The feeling of betrayal is the same thing. And Jesus is pointing this out to us. And Jesus here is not only being a prude here. He's not being only being Victorian. He knows how we are designed as humanity and that this is also a principle for life that is in our own best interests. He knows how we wired and he knows how that inappropriate negative sexual thoughts can do untold damage to our psyche. When we strip a person of their dignity when we objectify them as a sexual object, not only are we harming them but, and treating them less than the way God intended them to be treated, but we also do harm to ourselves as well. Now, we all know that we live in a sex-saturated society, right? We all have you know, these things attached to us at our hip, the smartphones, with the Internet. We are literally just a few clicks away from any instantaneous self-sexual gratification that we would ever, ever want. And, of course, this starts well before we have the self-discipline inside of ourselves to say no to stuff like this. My son, uh, youngest son, just graduated from middle school. And he tells me that in middle schools, it is commonplace. It is the norm for boys to be viewing pornography on their phones and talking about it as if it is no big thing whatsoever. He says that's, that's the norm. What they, and, and they think of it as being silly, just boy stuff. Okay? But what they don't know is that these boys grow up to be men and they are in my counseling office years later unable to be intimate with their wives because of the way they have rewired their brains to respond to an image, and they are incapable of interacting with the real thing. Then Jesus knows this, and he's warning us against this. By the way, I want to give you a, a, a tool for those of you who are parents who have kids, uh, boys, in, um, in middle school or in high school. This is the book that I'm going through with my son. It's called The Young Man's Guide to Awesomeness. All right, you know. It says, how to guard your heart, get the girl, and save the world, okay? It's a great book. The author talks openly about things like pornography and, and viewing that, and it is a great preemptive strike for those of you who are parents or grandparents. If you're grandparents, tell your kids about it. Because I'm telling you, our kids are going into a world that is sexually saturated. They are, they are incapable of putting up defenses against that. And we need to help them. We need to give them tools to defend uh, against that. 
And so Jesus is, Jesus is telling us that, that, you know, just to look at a woman is, is lustfully, is outside of the bounds of what God intends for each one of us. And so that we are, the, the, the way that we reflect God's faithfulness is in our faithfulness to a singular spouse. Now, that spouse might be in somebody's future. We may not know that person yet. But we are still to remain faithful to that person. Not only to uh, remain faithful to our vows, but in our covenants to one another. He says in verses 31 through 32, he says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, again, here, because we live in the world in which we do and because we live in the time that we do, some of these things that Jesus is saying is going to seem like he has just been living on Mars. All right? But Jesus has not been living in Ma- on Mars. Jesus has been living in the epicenter of the kingdom of God. And in the epicenter of the kingdom of God, people are to be faithful to their covenants and their vows to one another. And what God has to say about certain things does not change and is not up for revision or reconsideration. But, like I said, because we live in the specific culture that we live in right now, in the specific time that we live in right now, the church has adopted certain values and influences from the world around us. But these things, these things tend to change, okay? I mean, the way that the culture looks at things tends to change over time. Do, they not, do, do you remember when none of us wore our seatbelts? Do you remember that? I mean, I remember that the, 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 the station wagon was like a gymnasium <laughs> when I was growing up. Now our kids are in, you know, safety car seats until they're 15. All right? I was... I was reminded of this when uh, we were just in Russia just a week ago. The, the, when, we, when we lived in Russia 14 years ago, no one wore their seatbelt at all. In fact, it was an offense against the driver. If you even thought about putting on your seatbelt, you'd look at you like, what do you think? I'm like, you think I'm going to crash? You think, what? what? You think I'm a bad driver? And so I'm like, now they've instituted laws and values have changed in Russia. And so everybody's putting on their seatbelt. Incidentally, it was funny when we were going around all these treacherous mountain roads, our driver turned to me and said, he said, now you take off your seatbelt because if you go careening over the edge, you want to be thrown from the vehicle. You don't want to be trapped in your vehicle. And I'm like, all right, good to know. Good to know. All right. Point taken. Okay. But so this is all to say society's attitudes can and do change about certain things. Is it possible? Is it Is it possible that society's attitudes can change towards a certain subject, but God's attitude has not? Is that possible? I would say it's not only possible, it's probable and it's highly likely that society's attitudes can change towards a certain subject, but God's attitude is not. And that is exactly the situation that we are today with divorce. Okay? By the time, and this is where Jesus was when he strode on the scene as well. 
By the time Jesus came on the scene, there were two competing philosophies from two different rabbinical schools on the school of thought regarding divorce. One was more lax and one was more conservative. And I'll just give you a guess which was the predominant prevailing view at the time. Okay? And the more lax and liberal view interpreted a very narrow concession that was given in the Old Testament. Okay? And has blown it up as a license for a man to get divorced from his wife for almost any and every reason whatsoever. Isn't that amazing? I mean, can you imagine living in a society where a man could get a divorce for every and any reason? Huh. I guess we don't have to think very hard about that, do we? The only difference between the world that Jesus lived in and the world that we live in today is that both the husband and the wife can get divorced for any and every reason. We live in a no-fault divorce world. And because of that, we have an innumerable amount, a myriad of problems that come with this. Now, because we live in the country which we do, and we, I realize that in an audience of this size, I'm speaking to roughly upwards to about 50% of us who have been through the pain and the tragedy of divorce. I realize that. I know firsthand many of you have been the victims of no-fault divorce, where if a partner files, there's almost nothing you can do about it to save the marriage. I know from personal experience that many of you have made Herculean efforts to save or to salvage your marriage, sometimes to no avail. And I'm acutely aware that many have suffered through a long and difficult and distressful marriage situation. As a pastor, I am aware of all of that. And let me tell you, I empathize with you. Okay? But I'm also aware that we live in a day and an age where the rights of the individual trump all other rights and responsibility. Those of the children, those to society in general, both of whom benefit from maintaining and sustaining lasting marriages. I'm also aware that as a society, we are growing less and less resilient. There's a good word. Resilient. Okay? And I'm also aware that in the church, there is a growing understanding that God is actually more concerned about my happiness than He is about my holiness. Several years ago, I, we were preaching a message, and I made that statement that God is not so much concerned with your happiness as he is about your holiness. And a person who has grown up in the church, I know her well, came up to me and said, I have never heard that before. I had never heard that before. And so I want to repeat it to you today. God is more concerned about our holiness and reflecting who he is than our happiness. Now, holiness, I believe, leads to joy. But this pursuit of happiness is a slippery slope that can lead us to all sorts of decisions that may not line up with the word of God. And so it's with a bit of fear and trepidation and, and, and also understanding the culture that we're a part of and the time that we live in, but also with a healthy dose of confidence that I am not 
giving my own word on this, but I'm standing on the word of God and the words of Jesus Christ that we're way into this whole subject about marriage and divorce. And in preparation for this, for this message, I came across a great quote by a, my friend and mentor, Stuart Briscoe, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, One of our modern society's greatest disaster areas is marital and family breakdown, the disintegration of the family unit. What is needed is an authoritative statement from the scriptures regarding this all-important aspect of life. The Bible's teaching on the subject of divorce is diametrically opposed to the teachings of society. Secular philosophy and scriptural truth are incompatible. Yet in the church today, many of us are secular in our attitude towards divorce. And I would agree wholeheartedly with what he says. And what is needed is not for the church to accommodate the culture at large, but to prophetically and confidently, but lovingly reaffirm what God has said concerning marriage. And what God has said concerning marriage is that marriage is both exclusive to one person and one person alone in both deed and thought, like we just got done reading, and permanent to one person. Permanent to one person. And it's interesting, this, is, this passage is not the sum total of Jesus' teaching on, on divorce. I already alluded to the fact that there's quite a bit of controversy during, about divorce during Jesus' day and uh, what were grounds for a legitimate divorce. And later on in Matthew 19, the Pharisees kind of come to Jesus to kind of engage him in this, con- uh, in the, in this controversy and uh, get him uh, into the discussion. And uh, it says here in Matthew 19, it says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Which was kind of the prevailing thought at the time. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, he said. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And so it's interesting. What happens is that the Pharisees are coming to Jesus with this, with this question, with this controversial question, and uh, they're trying to get him to weigh in on divorce. When and when not can someone get divorced? What are the, what are the, the least possible parameters where someone uh, can, can actually file for divorce? And rather than going for the bait and wading into a discussion on divorce, Jesus instead turns it on his head and talks about God's original intent for marriage. And he takes them all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and he says, Don't you understand? Realize that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. In essence, Jesus is saying, you don't understand how God sees marriage. God sees marriage as a husband and wife coming together, and they are no longer two distinct individuals. They are now one. They are one flesh in God's eyes. And the, the, the act of intimacy that a husband and wife have with one another is not just the, the sum total of being one flesh. It's actually a reflection. It's a picture of what God has already done in making them one flesh. And Jesus then puts his exclamation point. This is not in Genesis. He puts his exclamation point on this whole passage. And he says, therefore, 
what God has joined together, let man not separate. Let man not separate. He's saying God's intent for marriage is that it would be exclusive and permanent for one another. Now, again, I'm painfully aware of the, who's in the audience today. I know you. You're friends of mine. I love you. And um, there are many of you who have been through the pain of divorce. And this message is not meant to make you feel terrible about yourself, although you may think I'm doing a pretty good job of doing that right now. Okay? Let me just say for you this morning, if you are divorced, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Okay? Let me remind you that the very first person that Jesus revealed himself to as Messiah, clearly telling it, I am the Messiah, was a woman who had been divorced five times and was currently living with her living boyfriend. And he essentially says to her, he says, yes, woman, he says, I am the Messiah. And let me tell you, God is seeking worshipers. And the only thing I want to know, woman who has been divorced five times, is are you one of them? Because if you're one of them, and you really want to worship God, He will in no way cast you out. No way cast you out. And so you have not committed the unpardonable sin. I also want to remind you that in the verses directly before this passage on divorce, our passage about lust and not looking at a woman lustfully. And let me tell you, there's not a red-blooded male in this room who hasn't broken that passage, including me, Okay, so we are all in this together. It's not a matter of whether you've endorsed or not. The issue is this. We are God's family. We're his adopted kids. We are to reflect who he is. In the kingdom of God, God is entirely faithful. And the way that we reflect his faithfulness is in our own fidelity to our marriage vows and to our marriage covenants with one another. Now, at the very end, Jesus talks about, you might be saying here, you're saying, okay, great, Mike, I'm not married, so how do I reflect God's faithfulness? All right, how do I do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus finishes by saying in verse 33, again, you have heard it said, the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oath that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. I wish I had hair to actually do that with. That would would be cool. But simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. See, back then, again, They had all sorts of elaborate schemes and mechanisms to make sure somebody was telling the truth. Now, you couldn't swear by Yahweh, God, that was strictly forbidden. So they had all sorts of kind of contrived ideas of how you could do that. You could swear by heaven, which was a euphemism for God. Okay, so you could swear by heaven. Or you could swear by Jerusalem or all all these kind of elaborate things. So people knew that you really, really told the truth. We do the same thing, don't we? I swear on a Bible that that's what happened. I swear on a whole stack of Bibles, right? 
Right? I swear on my grandmother's King James Version Bible that I'm telling the truth. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus says this. He says, I've got an idea. How about this? How about if when you say yes, you mean yes. And when you say no, you mean no. And every time you say that, you stay true to your word. And people know that you're people of truth. No need for the stack of Bibles. No need for Jerusalem or anything like that. Just be people of integrity. Your Heavenly Father is at the core of His being faithful to His Word. So you, you too, be faithful to your Word. Be faithful to the promises that you have made. Can you imagine what it would look like if Christians around the city became known as people of their word? <laughs> Wouldn't that be crazy? What, wouldn't it be crazy if, if, if in West Bend, in the high schools and in the middle schools, the followers of Jesus were known as those who didn't look at pornography? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be amazing if disciples of Jesus Christ had the reputation of being those ones who almost never got divorced? Do you know what we would have? We would have the one thing that we sorely lack right now. Credibility. Credibility. But we would be able to accurately and honest reflect the world around us. Our God, our Heavenly Father, I have a Heavenly Father who is at the core of His being faithful and trustworthy. And I, too, want to be faithful and trustworthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words of your Son, Jesus, are as true and penetrating today as they were back then. We need to be reminded we need to be reminded not only of your standard and your uh, ideal for marriage and hold it up as what you intend. But yet, we also want to demonstrate the grace and forgiveness that you always, always demonstrate when you are here on earth with us. If there's anybody in this room, anybody in this room who may be walking out of here feeling worse than they came in, then I have not done my job. I pray that you would remind us not only of your standard for marriage, but of your grace, your love, your forgiveness that you have for each and every one of us. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.